Scripture is Luke seven eleven through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm overwhelmed right now. Uh, A little, a little shaky, Um, but I feel I feel privileged to be up here, and I feel privileged to say, uh, "Hi, my name is Confessor, and I'm one of the pastors here at the (laughs) Painador." I, I had no idea that so many men could be easily fooled. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, as you know, we're still in the, our Easter tithe season, and we're uh, working through our series on the resurrections of, of Christ. Um, and really, as, as Mark rightly said, it's really more the resuscitation um, that takes place throughout, throughout the Scripture. Um, and in my section, I'm going to be actually speaking on uh, the widow's uh, only son that was raised uh, in the town of in the town of Nain, but I actually want to start before I get there because I think it's it's critical to part of the story. And I warned you before that I'm not always the the type of guy that starts right off where he's supposed to preach. I usually go back uh, several chapters, and I want to start in Luke four um, real quickly in in verse fourteen where. Jesus actually begins his ministry, kicks off his ministry, and it starts off by saying in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and reports about him went out throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And where he had just come from, he had just spent 40 days with the devil as the devil continued to hammer him and tempt him. And in the beginning of that, it says that Jesus was led to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit himself and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we see that even Satan's attempts to tempt Christ were completely feeble because Christ was operating under the power of the Holy Spirit already. So there was nothing that the devil could do to now thwart Satan's uh, uh, Christ's ministry in Satan. And actually... uh, in verse 13 of uh, chapter 4, it says, And when the devil left, he end, uh, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. And that's kind of where you want to like, insert like, the most maniacal laugh you can possibly insert in there. Um, and how foolish for Satan. It almost seems that that's just how he operates, that he thinks that he can, in one way, 
best God. And he actually lives almost in that false reality that somehow, even though that he knows the scripture as well, because the Bible attests to that, there's almost this twisted belief system system in him that he believes or he lives in such a way or exists in such a way that somehow he can thwart the plans of God, but he just continues to be used by God for God's glory. And we see as, as we move on from the middle of chapter 4, then the only way we can describe that Jesus actually begins um, basically a miracle tour, so to speak. Um, he first finds himself uh, speaking in a synagogue in Nazareth with his townsmen, he preaches a bit of the gospel in terms of that he starts reading from the scriptures or from the scroll of Isaiah 61. Uh, he quotes it and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So we actually what, I want to say, what is the ministry that Christ is called to? And he lays it out for his uh, townsmen in Nazareth. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then throughout that, before he journeys uh, into Capernaum, he's going to head there shortly. His ministry is essentially being fulfilled, and we see a Jesus who is starting from the middle of first vor all the way to verse chapter 7, that he's casting out demons, he's healing the sick, he's healing those who are afflicted with leprosy, he's healing the disabled, he's feeding the hungry, he's putting together his team, he's beginning to preach a new gospel, He had also made friends along the way, and he has also made enemies. If you remember, if you go back in Luke, back to his hometown in Nazareth, as he read from the scrolls of Isaiah, at first, they were impressed with him. They're like, not bad, Jesus. You know, kind of like that really pathetic pat on the head. You know, on the head, he is from Nazareth, right? His father's Joseph, you know, a carpenter. Jesus was obviously somehow homeschooled in theology because I don't remember him being taught by the greatest teachers. And so it's a very pacifying kind of pat on the back. It's good, good job, good job, Jesus. And Jesus has none of this, so he lays down some truth. And in some un believable way how this just kind of escalated in verse 28 it says when they heard these things all heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff i mean that just kind of escalated fast but actually, if you think about it, it makes me wonder, how many, young, how many young Jewish men did they throw off that cliff? How many people that they 
disagreed with, that they had issue with, that they thought the best remedy for that was just to simply get rid of them altogether. It is my belief that murder was already in their hearts before Christ had gone there. Not specifically for Christ, but how quickly they just dispatched with people. And then verse 30 is incredibly amazing. I said, but passing through their midst, he went on his way. So somehow in there, we see that Jesus became a ninja and worked his way through the crowd and escaped them. So he goes on this miracle tour, healing people, healing leopards, healing the sick, healing all that would come to him, feeding people, a man filled with great compassion. And we see in verse 7, in chapter 7, he also heals the centurion's servant, not even in close proximity, from just a small distance away, he heals her just by his words. His words carry authority. And so from there, he journeys now into Nain, which is about 20 miles. It winds up being about a two- or three-day walk from where he's at, stopping, resting, whatever. And along the way, he's managed to kind of collect an entourage of people. So that's in the beginning of chapter, of chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Soon after he went to the town called Nain, and his disciples, a great crowd, went with him. As they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, uh, to the town, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a, consider- and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So what we see is like Jesus is coming in with a large crowd, and she's coming out of the city with a considerably sized crowd. We don't know what size actually dictates large or what size is considered, but what we do know is that the people that were with Jesus far outnumber that the people were that the people that were with the widow. Essentially, you're always going to get more people if you're throwing a party. You're always going to get more people if you're walking around healing people, making food, doing miracles in front of them. No one really wants to hang out in a place that's filled with sorrow. So her crowd is considerably smaller. And then we see here, when Jesus actually saw this widow, he had compassion on her. Actually, I wanted to say he had empathy on her. And he said, ma'am, don't you know that I am sufficient for you? Don't you know that all you need is me? That my father works all things out for good? Well, yeah, of course he doesn't say that at all, right? He goes beyond empathy and moves straight into compassion. And if you remember, Brother Stan taught us that the word compassion there is actually the Greek word called splagmitsamai, uh, which means that at that moment when Jesus encountered this widow, he had a gut-wrenching experience that drove him to action. 
Christ could not control himself. He had to do something. He could not just stay with his caravan and let this woman walk on by. So he does something that would simply kick anybody out of any leadership team. He walks up to the woman who is mourning and says, Do not weep. And then he reaches out and touches the bear, giving no consideration to becoming unclean. And it's kind of here that I want to say I believe I owe you guys a story. Um, I think like a few months ago or weeks ago, I was preaching and I was intimating on some issues going on in my past that kind of led me up to this point. Um, and it's actually a rather difficult story. It's not a story that it's, I'm not necessarily accustomed to sharing, but not necessarily sharing out in public necessarily. So if you would bear with me. Um, I came from a, a modestly large family. It was like six of us. Um, I was right in the, in the middle of that about four years old, um, when my father had abandoned the entire family uh, and actually had run away with my mom's sister, um, which just created a lot of shame and a lot of turmoil. I don't have a whole lot of memories of that. I don't have a whole lot of memories, per se, of my father. I've got some captions of him, like I know what his shoes look like and... I know what color sweater he was wearing one day when I visited him, but I have real no strong physical memory of him. But I remember growing up that something was just wrong in me, that somehow with him abandoning us, a part of me had just died. I remember feeling a great sense of vulnerability, a great sense of just being lost. And as a small Puerto Rican family growing up in the Humble Park area, we moved around a lot. Um, we probably, I'm not sure why, I could speculate as to why, but um, we just moved around from apartment to apartment. Um, it almost felt like we were running away from something or hiding from something. And there was this one apartment in particular on Beach and Spalding. Um, and as every story goes that starts off like this there was this man uh, he was the landlord of the apartment uh, I know his name but it's like a name in my mind I'm like I won't say his name and again I don't remember a lot of facts I don't remember a lot of details and I, even if I did it wouldn't benefit the body to, to go into those details but at some point in living in that apartment, um, my landlord actually uh, sexually abused me. Um, again, I don't remember a lot, but I have captions. I have little small images of waking up in his bed from time to time, taking long road trips, just him and myself, um, 
and I shared with some of the brothers before, is like I have an image of just staring out the window. It was a rainy day, and I swear to you, I could count every single raindrop, raindrop that ran down the side of my window. A part of me died that day. And I live my life in this bubble, just numb to reality, always feeling like someone who was on the outside, always looking and never being able to break into life, never being able to experience joy. And in fact, whenever there was joy around me, like this thing in me would rise up and I would just get angry. And when I got angry, I got violent. And sometimes I would become so violent that everything would just black out. If I got into a fight with some guys on the street and if it got bad enough and I would black out, I would just like wake up and not remember anything that had happened just to hear my friends celebrating at all the evil that had just took place. I still can't recall those events. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, Basil van der Kluck states that the greatest suffering often are the lies that we believe about ourselves. And if I were to characterize my life from that point on, it was just this endless series of believing that I was this type of person, this particular type of person. And I would assume, and I had assumed at a time when the gospel had entered into my life, when Christ had come in, that all would be well. But I had become so clever in hiding my pain and my shame and the way that I felt filthy and dirty that would not let him into those parts. And knowing the gospel, that he had come in and healed all those parts, that he had come in and had, and had taken all those things to the cross, but still in my mind and in my heart, I just held on to that belief system. And I would sit at church and I would literally say to myself as I heard the gospel being preached, I am the exception to the story. There is no grace for me. I am Judas sitting at this table. Nobody knows, but I am Judas. And then I met my wife and her family. And I brought all this pain and all this suffering into our relationship. And this thing grew inside of me that at one point I just wasn't aware that was there. And I just fell headlong into a long addiction to pornography. And it would provide relief for moments. That for those brief seconds or minutes, I felt normal and felt alive but then immediately after 
Because Satan has no mercy. Shame and guilt just came crushing in. Squeezing more life out of me. Creating and building more shame. More distress. More trauma. And again, fearing the worst. Fearing of being rejected by my wife and by my family, I kept it quiet. I kept it hidden for as long as I possibly could. Till one day, that addiction led me into an extra marital relationship with someone. And I wrestled with not, should I bring this up right now? And some friends have counseled me and were like, uh, I wouldn't do it if I were you. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm glad you're not me. I'm hoping you didn't go through this. Um, but I feel that it's important. Now, I want to just say, I remember like when Kim and I were actually at the tail end of putting our marriage back together, um, there was that weight of how would people perceive us. And then we just landed on maybe people can see us as people of, to see what redemption looks like in us, to see what it looks like, how Christ, how Christ puts a marriage back together after it's been completely destroyed, after all trust has been gone, after I betrayed the woman that I love. It took us years to put things back together, to rebuild a measure of trust. And it took even longer to now to just dig into the deepest parts of my heart, to reveal and speak about the things that have for so long gone unspoken. We talked about the abuse. We talked about the addiction. We talked about the infidelity. We shared that story with her parents. We shared the story with her brothers. And I wish her brothers were here because they're like these two big mountain men, you know, with these huge hands and these huge knees that, that at any moment could have just beat me senseless into the ground Kim's sister Katie is also that tough. She's sitting in the back. But none of them did. They all received me. They all cared for me. They all loved me. They all extended this grace that I absolutely did not deserve. How in the world could her father embrace me and say that he looked at me as one of his sons when I betrayed his daughter. But he did. And for you Moody students, if you want a picture of what incarnational ministry looks like, it's sitting back there in the room. There's two silver-haired people in the back, John and Debbie Thompson, who moved here years ago. Uh, from a small town, or they moved around Wisconsin, Madison, California, 
and landed in Humble Park when it was devastated and broken and considered to be one of the worst neighbor, neighborhoods in the nation. And they came and they helped plant the church and disciple people. And the outgrowth of that incarnational ministry is that they gave their daughter. To me, an ex-game banger, a violent man, a man filled with anger, a man filled with rage. Of course, they didn't see this at the time because I was a master at hiding things. But I think they knew. I think they knew what was going on in my heart. but they knew who Christ was and they can see the work that Christ was doing. And so, Jesus goes to the widow and he says, do not weep. And then he reached out and touched the bear. And the bearers stood still. And that's so like Jesus to reach in to what is unclean and embrace it and hold it, to love it, to forgive it, to consume all the pain and the suffering. And that the role that my in-laws play, played, my wife played, and Rick and Teresa my children, and the pastors who stood behind me. Their role was to be in that smaller crowd carrying the dead, waiting for Christ to come and resurrect, patiently walking, patiently Enduring, patiently praying and petitioning the Savior. And Christ steps in the middle of that. And he says, Confessor, arise. Young man, arise. And he could have said, all this young man needs is me. All this young man needs is the truth of the gospel. All this young man needs is to jump on the bandwagon with the rest of my entourage. But he doesn't do that. He gives him back to his mother. The Savior sharing his creation with the widow, knowing that, yes, in a very real sense, all this young man needs it is him. But Christ is always thinking of the garden. And I think I've said before, I feel like I'm always living in the garden when he created Eve. And he looked at Adam and he said, it's not right 
for him to be alone. And so he made people. He made people to walk with the dead. He made people to carry those who are lost and broken, discarded, marginalized. And it doesn't matter if you live here in Ukrainian village or in East or West Garfield Park. It doesn't matter how clean the streets are or how dirty the streets are. It doesn't matter if the young men standing in the corner are selling candy or selling drugs or selling women. We are called to extend compassion, to move in this gut-wrenching way to people who are lost, broken, and otherwise marginalized. Whether they're wearing a $500 jacket or a $2 hand-me-down, all people are in need of Christ's I. Let me pray. Father, we know just by our own stories, not by anyone else's stories, that you have stepped into our time and you've rolled up your sleeves and you've reached out and touched all our ugliness, all our sin, not just the sin that we have committed, Lord, but the sins that were committed against us. You are indeed a good, good father. And your heart is both simultaneously broken and moved with compassion and also simultaneously filled with great joy because you see the work that your son has accomplished and you receive both joy and pain. You're not a God who just simply lives in empathy, but a God who is moved with compassion. In your name I pray. Amen.